Wow. Uh, how am I supposed to preach a message on humility after, after that? Jeez. Uh, well, welcome, Traders Point. How are we doing? We doing okay today? Great. Well, as Aaron said, my name is Kyle. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And I just want to take a moment and welcome anyone who's tuning in online, uh, everyone at our PM services, everyone at all of our campuses. Special shout out to all my people at our Midtown campus and our our brand new Northeast campus that just launched last week. Man, we've heard some incredible stories just in a week's time about what's going on there. And we're excited about what God is going to continue doing in the Fishers area. Well, today we are kicking off a brand new series called We Are TPCC. And um, really what we want to do is we want to provide uh, some insight into who we are. We want to do a deep dive into who we are, our heart as a church, and who uh, we want to be. So whether this is your first time coming through the doors or you call this place home, we feel like this is going to be a valuable series for you. And as Aaron mentioned, we have three core distinctives around here, and those are humble, hungry, and healthy. And these are more than just words that get put on like a fancy sign and get thrown out in the hallway um, and hung up. These are gospel-centered qualities, qualities that help us to do everything uh, to live out the mission of Jesus with the the tenor and the tone and the heart of Jesus. And today, I have the wonderful pleasure of leading us through that first quality of humble. Now, let me just uh, start by saying how fun it is to prepare and preach a message on humility, because the perception is, like, if I'm going to be talking about this, then I should be qualified, which is a fair assumption to make. I mean, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, geez, if Kyle's going to sit up here and talk to us about humility, he must be a pretty humble guy, to which I would say, you're right. (laughs) I am. I'm probably the humblest guy you are ever going to meet on the face of this planet. I mean, I think on the ladder of humility sits Jesus, then Mother Teresa, and then Kyle Riley. <laughs> Obviously, I'm, I'm kidding, but that's the, that's the challenge. That's the tension that we live in, isn't it? Because humility isn't something that you can't actually claim or even acknowledge for that matter because the moment that you do, you're not being humble. Like, you've never gone to that social gathering or that event and, you know, the one where you do the icebreaker that we all love where you got to tell something about yourself and you're like, hey, I'm John. I work in sales, I love to fish, and I'm humble. Like, that doesn't happen. One, because that's weird, all right? Um, Two, uh, because you'd be lying. Because to claim yourself as a humble person is an oxymoron, all right? So uh, what is the, you know, how do we, what do we do with this? How do we live out humility? What does true humility actually look like? Why does it even matter? Well, I think that the Bible actually has a lot to say about humility. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today, so go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. All the verses are going to be up here on the screen. But what I want to do is I want to set us up a little bit so that we get a good comprehension of what's getting ready to happen in Philippians. And uh, Philippians is actually a letter. It's a letter written by this guy named Paul. Paul was an apostle and a missionary. And what Paul would do is he would go from town to town telling people, primarily non-Jewish people, about Jesus. Uh, And he would start these churches in these towns that he went to. And one of the towns that he ends up going to is a city named Philippi. Now, Philippi is in Macedonia, which today would be like modern-day Greece. All right, And it's a a vibrant city. And all of this can be found in Acts chapter 16. And we don't have time to go there. So I'm going to give us like the 30,000-foot view of what takes place in Acts chapter 16 because it really sets us up for what we're going to dive into in Philippians 2. So Paul gets this uh, vision of a guy telling him, hey, come to Macedonia, come to Philippi, and preach the gospel. Tell us about Jesus. 
So Paul and his homie Silas, they get on a boat and they go to Philippi. When they get to Philippi, they encounter this group of women who are there praying. And within this group of women is a particular woman named Lydia. Now, the Bible says that Lydia was a merchant of purple cloth. And so that means that she would just sell purple cloth. Now, purple cloth was worn as like um, a sign of nobility during that time. A lot of like kings and leaders would wear it. So it was pretty expensive. And that means that Lydia was in a lucrative business, a.k.a. Lydia was loaded. All right, Lydia had some bread. Okay, so Paul and Silas preached the gospel to Lydia. Lydia, it says, the Bible says that, uh, that God opened up her heart and she began following Jesus and she gets baptized. Not only does she get baptized, but her whole household gets baptized. Shortly after that, Paul and Silas are still in Philippi, and they're walking through, and they encounter this girl who is possessed by an evil spirit. And this evil spirit enables her to tell fortunes. And she begins, like, yelling things after Paul and Silas, just acting crazy. Like, I don't know if you ever had that younger sibling or maybe even that child who would just, like, call your name nonstop for, like, 10 minutes straight, trying to get your attention, only for you to turn around and finally say, what? And they show you something stupid, like they can blink 10 times in three seconds. Like... (laughs) Like, take that feeling of, like, aggravation and magnify it by 100. That's how Paul and Silas are feeling right now because the Bible says that she follows them for days, actually yelling after them. So much so that Paul gets frustrated, turns around, and casts the evil spirit out of her. So now this girl was actually a slave, and her owners would use her abilities to, like, make money by telling fortunes. So the owners of this slave girl get upset because now their cash cow is gone. So they incite this mob against Paul and Silas. They drag them before the city officials. The city officials order that Paul and Silas be stripped of their clothes, beaten, and thrown in jail. Well, it gets even crazier because while in jail, Paul and Silas, you think they would be discouraged, but they're actually singing hymns and praying. Like, it's crazy. And then this earthquake happens while they're in jail, and the stocks that they're in, the, the shackles, they get, in, they get loose. And the jailer who's watching over Paul and Silas and the other prisoners thinks that all the prisoners have escaped in the process. So he draws his sword and gets ready to kill himself. Because if the city officials find out that the prisoners escaped under his watch, he's good enough as dead anyway. So he's like, I might as well get it over with. Well, Paul and Silas stop the jailer. As he's getting ready to kill himself, they're like, no, we're still here. Calm down. Put the sword away. Um, They preach the, the gospel to the jailer. He gives his life to Jesus, gets baptized. And his whole family and his whole household actually get baptized as a result of that. I just want us to think about how wild that is. That three different people had three different spiritual encounters with Jesus through Paul and Silas. And maybe we can even start to see ourselves in that narrative. Maybe we can take a moment to realize the moment that Jesus intercepted our life. Maybe, like Lydia, you were successful in your career and you were chasing after monetary gain and status. But then Jesus interrupted you and showed you that nothing that you can ever chase after can fill your heart like he can. Maybe you're like uh, the slave girl who uh, was in relationships where she was just being used for what she could offer. And it caused some dysfunction within the relationships, and maybe it even created some trust issues within, within you. But then Jesus got a hold of you and showed you his love and his mercy and his grace, and he showed you that he offers a relationship that can actually be trusted. Or maybe you're like the, the jailer to where life got so bad that you thought that it would be okay to, to take your own life, but then God stopped you. And he showed you that you don't have to die, that he actually loves you so much that you are actually worth dying for. I just want to know if there's anybody here today who remembers what Jesus has saved them from. Is there anybody here today who realizes who they were before coming to Jesus? Anybody remember going down into that water and coming up being raised as a new person? Because God is good. 
And shortly after that, what happens is crazy because the city officials realize they made a mistake. They let Paul and Silas go. And that's where I want us to pick up on real quick before we go into Philippians. In Acts chapter 16, it says this in verse 40. It says, when Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. Then look at this. It says, there they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. So we see here that there's now this group of believers that Paul and Silas met with, these new followers of Jesus that exist in Philippi. And this is the church. In Philippians, Paul is writing a letter back to this church, this group of people who likely includes Lydia, it likely includes the jailer, and possibly even that slave girl amongst others. And Paul is writing this letter from prison again. He's now in Rome in prison, but he's writing to them, giving them some some words of counsel, some wisdom, some encouragement. And that's what I want us to pick up on in Philippians chapter 2. Did I give you guys enough time to get there? (laughs) You ready? All right, starting in verse 1, he says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. All right, so let's stop right there for a second. I want you to notice the language that Paul is using here. He says fellowship together, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together, one mind and purpose. You see what he's stressing? He's stressing unity. He's saying, hey, guys, I'm giving you this goal as a church to live with one another. Now, this would have been um, incredibly complex for the Philippian church to do because Philippi was a diverse, uh, cosmopolitan city. There were people from all types of ethnicities and cultures, backgrounds, socioeconomic status, um, which likely means that the Philippian church was diverse. I mean, Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. The jailer was a middle-class blue-collar worker. The servant girl, the slave girl was a servant. You see how broad of a spectrum That is, yet Paul is saying, I want you guys to live united. But there were some extreme differences amongst this church. Not, I mean, very much so like our church today, the church that we are in right now. And this wasn't just unique to the Philippian church. Uh, This actually existed in Jesus' ministry as well. He had disciples of all types of backgrounds and personalities and personal agendas. He had people on opposite ends of the political spectrum. There was this disciple named Matthew who was a tax collector who was contracted by the Roman government. And but there was also this disciple named Simon. His nickname was the Zealot. And scholars believe he was called the Zealot because he was part of a political movement called the Zealots who hated Rome. They actually would plot assassinations against Roman leaders. Could you imagine what conversations were like around the campfire between Simon and Matthew? I mean, I could just see Simon like, bro. Really? Like, Matthew, you're just going to, like, side with Rome? That's, that's how you feel? I promise if Jesus didn't have this whole foreknowledge thing going for him, I'd take you out right now. <laughs> and then I could see, like, Matthew, like, oh, really, Simon? Well, according to my tax records, you hate Rome so much that you owe quite a pretty penny in back taxes to the government. So it's going to be kind of hard to take me out from a Roman jail cell. And then I could see Peter just kind of, like, chiming in, like, awkward. <laughs> they were different. Followers of Jesus have always been different. But the beautiful thing is that the gospel has a way of uniting us as believers like like nothing else. Now, here's the thing. Um, Unity sounds great, right? Like, I think a lot of us would be in favor 
for unity. Like, cue Michael Jackson, we are the world, let's all hold hands and sing. Because conceptually, unity sounds great, but it's a lot harder to live out. It's harder to live out because we live in a society that is so divided. You either associate yourself with this or with that. I mean, you're either conservative or you're liberal. Suburbs or inner city, IU, Purdue, Apple, Android, first class or coach, Netflix or Hulu, Chipotle, Qdoba, drive-through or mobile orders. Can I get an amen for the mobile orders for all of my introverts in the room? I mean, let me just say, there is nothing more glorious than pulling up to Chick-fil-A, bypassing that mile-long line that somehow can wrap itself around the building eight times, pull into a curbside, Driver, uh, driver parking spot to hit a button on your phone so they can bring out your food. You can say thank you only for them to say, my pleasure. Listen, don't judge me as a millennial for liking mobile orders. It's great. It's God's gift. But division is the reality of the world that we live in. But let me just get serious for a moment and ask you a question. When's the last time you've intentionally stepped into the division? When is the last time that you have actually sought out a conversation with someone who doesn't look like you? When's the last time you invited someone over to your house who doesn't think like you, vote like you, or come from where you come from? When's the last time that uh, instead of making an assumption about a group of people based on a media segment or a social media post, you actually sought out the perspective of somebody else? When's the last time that you sat across the table from someone who's not like you and asked them this question? What's it like? What's it like to be black in America or white? Or what's it like to be Latino or Asian? What's it like to live where you live or do what you do? What's it like to be a millennial or a baby boomer? You know, honestly, that's one of the things that I love about my um, Traders Point men's group. It's because we are a group of men who come from various backgrounds and occupations and uh, social, I mean, uh, marital statuses and even age. The youngest guy in our group is 24. The oldest guy is 70. And there's a representation from every decade in between. And what we have the opportunity to do is gather on a weekly basis and learn from one another, our life experiences, our successes, our failures. And we get to ask questions like, what's that like? What did you learn from that experience? What did Jesus teach you through that? And then you know what we get to do after asking that question? Shut up and listen. And in the process, Jesus begins to scrape away our pride and fill us with compassion and empathy because one of the qualities of humility is a willingness to learn. Listen, we live in a society that is divided in more ways than we can count. But as followers of Jesus, one thing reigns true. God is calling us to embrace our differences through humility for his glory and our good. This is what he wants. This is what he died for. This is what he commanded his disciples to do, to love one another in spite of their differences. Because let me tell you something. It is inconsistent with the gospel as believers for us to lift up the name of Jesus with one hand while holding on to divisive attitudes and beliefs with the other hand. And that's not the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be the kind of church where with both hands we are lifting up the name of Jesus. With both hands we are reaching out for diversity and unity. With both hands we are embracing each other's differences while praising Jesus for dying for each and every one of us no matter what we look like. 
That's what the gospel calls us to do. So as we look at scripture, Paul is saying, I want you guys to be of one mind, to be united. But Paul knew that if there was anything that was going to prevent them from doing this, it was one thing. Let's look at verse 3. He says this. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Man, Paul gets straight to it. He goes straight to their heart. He's saying, hey, guys, look, I know I just told you this thing about living as one, being united, working together, loving one another. But if there is something that's deep within you that has the capability of messing all that up, it's this. It's your pride. It's your selfishness. It's your inability to be humble. And what Paul is getting ready to do is he's going to teach them and tell them how to be humble. Now, I don't know if any of you have had the luxury of trying to teach someone how to be humble, but it's not the easiest of tasks. I mean, my wife and I, we are living in that world right now. We have two beautiful young daughters, uh, Kendall and Corinne. Kendall is four, and Corinne, listen, listen, like, they look cute (laughs) up there on that screen. But they're probably tearing up kids' ministry right now as, as we speak. But our oldest daughter, Kendall, she's four, and she is super competitive. Like, I'm pretty competitive as a former college athlete, but she's even more competitive than me. And she does this thing where no matter what she's doing, she could be playing a game or a competition. It doesn't matter if she's playing hopscotch or coloring a picture of Doc McStuffins. If she wins something, she throws her hands up in the air as loud as she can and says, I win! I win! I'm the winner! Woo! And in that moment, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. Um, Okay, Kendall. I, I, be humble. I know you just beat your one-year-old sister in getting undressed to get in the bathtub first. <laughs> like, congratulations, but be humble. It's actually become quite funny in our house. My parents and my, my siblings, they think it's hilarious. So much so to the point that we actually turned it into a meme. We caught her mid-pose doing her victory shout. And we actually use it in our group chats. It's great. She has this picture where she's throwing her hands up. And she says, <laughs> I win! You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of um, that Oprah segment where she's like, you get a car, you get a car, everybody gets a car. (laughs) I've actually thought about texting that picture to my wife before when I want to debate with her. And then wisdom kicked in, and I realized I like sleeping in my own bed. So I didn't send the picture. (laughs) No, but I think for most of us, When we think about what pride is, we think about that. We think about like arrogance and conceit. We think about that person who um, is just full of themselves. Maybe that person we know who just kind of needs to come off their high horse. Like we all have one of those people in our circle. And if you don't, chances are (laughs) you're you're that person. But indeed, pride, pride does include that. It does include arrogance. It does include, like, bragging and being boastful. But I think we need to be careful because pride is not limited to that. Pride is a lot more subtle than we tend to, to think. And it's dangerous because if we think of pride as only of that, then we miss how it surfaces itself in our own lives, how it manifests itself in our own heart. So before you sit up here and say, Kyle, yeah, that's great and all, but I don't really have that struggle. I don't, I don't deal with that. I think All of us need to do somewhat of a heart check because pride is the root of all sin. Pride can be found in the lies that we tell and the comparisons that we make. 
It can be found in the social media posts that we put up, the anger we express, the jealousy that we feel, the addictions that we have, even the gossip that we engage in. Yes, pride can be found in gossip. I actually came across um, this quote by pastor and author Scott Sauls who said this. He said, gossip is pornography of the mouth. You undress somebody and you objectify them. You take a person and turn them into a thing in order to get a cheap thrill without making a commitment to them. If you can't say amen, say ouch. Listen, we all wrestle with pride. It just looks differently in our lives. While we may not think that we're prideful because we don't brag and boast, it doesn't mean that we aren't selfish. It doesn't mean that we don't have these egos that have its way to uh, transform its way into our hearts because pride is anchored in selfishness and self-centeredness. And it often causes us to approach life decisions and responses and all types of things by placing, placing them through a filter, I would say, where we ask this question, what's best for me? Have you ever asked that question? I know I have, probably more times than I care to admit. And for some of us, this question is hitting pretty close to home. We become all too familiar with this question. This approach that we have is probably what's tearing some of our relationships or our friendships apart. It's probably what is causing the tension or a friction in our marriage. Asking this question and this approach is what caused us to walk away from um, the commitment that we made. It's why the, the business deal went bad. It's why you have yet to apologize to that person that you hurt. It's why you return to look at the thing that you said that you were going to stop looking at only to be left empty again. What's best for me? Now, I need to, to be clear because um, I'm not talking about situations where you have to ask that question for the emotional or the physical safety of you or your family. That's different. But what I am talking about are situations where we often ask this question out of a sense of entitlement and where it causes us to place personal preference over purpose. And I think Paul knew that this existed. He knew that this was a threat to the Philippian church. He knew that if there was anything that was going to divide them, it was their selfish egos. But Paul is getting ready to show them and us that instead of asking what's best for me, there's a better approach that we can take. One that helps us to model the lowly heart of Jesus. Let's look at what he continues to say in verse 3. He says, be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. I love this because uh, Paul doesn't just go like Kendrick Lamar on them and tell them, sit down, be humble. <laughs> and some of you are like, can we talk about Kendrick Lamar in church? And then there's a vast majority of you leaning over right now like, who is Kendrick Lamar? <laughs> I don't remember reading about him in the Bible. <laughs> but again, Paul doesn't just say be humble. He actually tells them how to be humble. He says, thinking of others as better than yourselves, don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. This is what it means to be humble. And I just have to say this, when he says thinking of others as better than yourselves, he's not talking about uh, self-deprecation. He's not talking about putting yourself down or making yourself feel badly about yourself because humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's doing everything you can to demonstrate and model the love of Jesus by putting other people's needs before your own. And you're probably sitting there thinking, yeah, Kyle, well, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound like much fun. <laughs> and I hear you. That's because this is not natural. It's not anything that society is telling us to do. And Jesus knew this. 
And this is why he called his, uh, his disciples to take the low position. In a society that was uh, marked by rank and status and prestige, Jesus, not much different than society today, Jesus was telling uh, them to be different. It's why he went first and uh, demonstrated this by doing things like washing his disciples' feet. It's why he like, would touch people who had leprosy, whose society had marginalized and pushed to the fringes. It's why he would do things like minister alongside women who were considered second-class citizens during that time. Jesus went first in all of this. And he even said about himself that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And honestly, this is why we encourage you guys to serve, all of us to join a serving team. Because in the process of serving, you have an opportunity not just to carry out the mission of Jesus, but to put other people before yourself. But I got to be clear because it's not just about serving. Because I don't know if you know this, but you can serve and still have a prideful heart. You can serve and still be filled with pride. Humility isn't about serving itself. It's about what God wants to do through your heart as you serve. It's about what he wants to do as he changes you from the inside out. This is what humility is. Humility is about the posture of your heart towards God and others. It's about a heart that has been broken before God. And you begin to see yourself before him and you realize just how messed up you actually are. That you're not just a good person who occasionally makes mistakes, but that our sin was so bad that Jesus had to die for it. But it's a brokenness that is, that is so beautiful because God takes it and he redeems it and he uses it. He mends that broken heart back together and transforms it from the inside out. And it is with this changed, transformed heart that you now come to God and you say, all right, God, whatever you want to do in my life, I'm willing to let you do it. However you want to use me, I will be used. However you want me to serve, I will do it because now I understand that it's not about me. And I now know that nothing or no one is beneath me. So then now my question is, how do we live this out? What would it look like if we took that heart posture into our everyday lives? What would it look like if you took this heart posture into your marriage? Oh, it would change everything. Because I think a lot of us are willing to stand across the aisle from that person and say, till death do us part. And we'd even be willing to say, yeah, I'll die for that person. But it's a lot different to say, I'll die to myself each and every day that I wake up. It's a lot different to say, I'll put that other person's interests above my own. If you wake up with that mentality of how can I serve that other person, it would change everything about your marriage. Even if it's not reciprocated. That's the biggest thing. And I think that's the hang-up that a lot of us have, is when our own needs aren't being met, are we still willing to meet that other person's needs? Fellas, I'm just going to kind of throw you a bone here. I'm going to help you out this week. Um, maybe you wake up Monday morning, and uh, you go cook your wife breakfast, or maybe warm her up a nice cup of coffee, and just come back up into the room, look at her, make sure you brush your teeth first, and um, just look into her beautiful eyes, and you just ask this question. How can I put your interests above mine this week? How can I serve you this week? Man, she's not going to know what it is. She's going to be like, who is this guy in front of me? Am I, am I still dreaming? Am I awake? What would it look like if we took this heart posture, heart posture into the classroom or the workplace where we didn't gossip about people, but instead we ran towards them seeking to build a relationship with them? What would it look like if we served our classmates or our coworkers or our neighbors with no strings attached simply because we see them as people whom God created and Jesus died for? 
What would it look like if we had this heart posture within the church? We could change the world. It would give us this desire to live in unity with one another. We would have this willingness to lean into the difficult conversations. We would be willing to do everything that we could to live in unity. It would birth within us this desire not only to see this church, but to see this city look more and more like heaven. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. One that says, hey, we don't have this whole thing figured out. We can't take credit for what God is doing here. The only thing that we want to do is we want to serve with compassion. We want to put other people's needs before our own, and we want to keep our hearts pure before God. That's the kind of church that changes the world. If we asked a different type of question, it would change everything. If we had this heart posture towards God and others, it would change that selfish question that we often ask ourselves by adding one small but big word in the middle that completely turns it around. Instead of asking what's best for me, we would ask this question. What's God's best for me? That's a radically different question. And God's best for you is not to give you uh, all of your personal desires or help, to help you meet your goals. It's not to give you the, the job you've always wanted, the spouse you've always dreamed of, or even the house that you've always imagined. You know want to know what God's best for you is? You know what he wants? He wants you to imitate Jesus. He wants you to imitate Jesus in the way you love and serve others because that's when you're being humble. And he wants you to think and to act Cameron. This is exactly what Paul goes on to say in verse 5. Let's look at it. He says, you must have the same, say it with me, what word? Attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. You want to know what God's best for you is? See Jesus, to imitate Jesus, to surrender your heart to Jesus. Because he didn't hold on to the entitlement or the privileges that he had as God. He humbled himself. And I love the way that um, the message translation paraphrases that scripture. He says he didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless and obedient life, and then he died a selfless, obedient death. And he died that selfless, obedient death for you. He humbled himself and left heaven and came to earth for you. He took the low position of a servant for you. He allowed himself to be arrested and tried unfairly for you, punched in the face for you, spat on for you, mocked for you. He took those lashes on his back for you. He carried that cross up a hill for you. And in the moment, he had the opportunity to come down off of that cross because he allowed himself to be nailed to it. But he had an opportunity to come down off of that cross and in humility, he stayed there for you. And he rose again for you. Listen, nothing humbles us more than the realization that our sin is what nailed Jesus to that cross. 
But nothing makes us more grateful than realizing that he allowed it to happen because he loves us. He wasn't asking what's best for me when he did that. He was asking, what's God's best for me? What's my father's best for me? And his response to that question was one of of the most selfless and humble responses known to man. He said, Father, not my will, but your will. That's selfless and obedient. You know, I I mentioned my daughter Kendall earlier and um, just how competitive she is. And she is every bit of that. But she's also one of the sweetest people that I know. I mean, she's smart and she's funny and uh, she's wise and observant. And uh, we do this thing where we'll read her a story before, before bed. And oftentimes we'll read her children's Bible. And uh, so we sit down and we read uh, the story of, of Jesus and the crucifixion. And it's one that we had read countless times before. But there was something different about this night. She was a little bit more intrigued this night. And so as I'm flipping through the pages, she sees the three crosses on the hill. She notices, Daddy, there's, there's three crosses there. there. There are three people on the cross. Who are, those, who are those other people on the cross, Daddy? And so I began to tell her that in addition to Jesus, that there was these two thieves, these criminals who were on the cross, and they were being punished for stealing. And I begin to see the wheels turning in her head as she's pondering and thinking, and she looks down, and about 10 to 15 seconds go by, and I'm getting ready to turn the page and go on, and she stops me, and she looks up. And with curiosity all in her face, she said, but what bad thing did Jesus do? Why was he being punished? And in that moment, the Holy Spirit reminded me of the selflessness and the humbleness, the humility of Jesus And I get down on one knee, and I look at her straight in the face and with tears in my eyes. I said, Jesus didn't do anything wrong, baby. The only thing that he was guilty of was loving you. And you see her just processing it. And I don't know if she fully got it or not, but I know what happened that night is that God used a children's Bible to remind me of the humility of Jesus and how we all have an opportunity to surrender our hearts to him. And he went first by modeling it all. And that's what we get to surrender our hearts to every single day that we wake up. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for loving us, for dying for us. God, we thank you for modeling humility that you could have stayed where you were in heaven, but you humbled yourself and came to this earth. You led the the perfect life that none of us could live, and you died the death that we deserve to die. That is humility, and that's what we get to model and pattern ourselves after. So I just pray, God. I pray that we wouldn't just see this as a message about being kind towards other people or letting people go first, because that's not what this is about. This is about surrendering our hearts to you. This is about a heart posture that sees you for who you are, but then just lives out obedience and thankfulness and selflessness. God, I pray for anybody who is across any of our campuses who is wrestling with pride, maybe to the point that it's destroying their relationships or their marriages. Would you just allow them to see who you are and how you have so much better for them? And would you help us as a church to take that humility and to live united with one another as one church. God, we thank you 
We love you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.